0: Well, hello there. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I get to interview the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of agriculture. I want to start off today's episode with a shout out to the newest member of the FOA community, Pablo Hari. Pablo is a farmer and entrepreneur in Argentina, a country I love very much from my study abroad days in college in Mendoza. He has several projects going down there, including one of which I thought was interesting called Nesters. It's the first ag tech startup enhancer in Argentina. Well, you can join Pablo and others for exclusive content and community at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Today's episode is the convergence of a few different themes that I've been thinking about that have been on my mind quite a bit lately. First and foremost, what does a more distributed, so regionalized or even localized food system look like at scale? And is that even possible? And also, how can producers capture more of the value of the food they produce in that type of food system? And finally, what is the right type of investor or investment vehicle to help fuel that sort of system? A lot of questions there, and there's a lot of follow-up questions sort of wrapped up into those big questions. But today's episode has some of the answers to these questions. It's one I'm really happy to share with you. Joining me is Stephen Hohenreeder. Stephen has an agricultural background and spent his early career in the capital markets. And since 2007, he's been on a journey to invest private capital along the value chain in the food system in a way that promotes more regenerative land management practices. Stevens has got a long history of working with what are called family offices. So if you haven't heard of these, these are investment vehicles, investment entities that invest on behalf of a single family. So they don't have, you know, LPs like a venture capital fund were or, you know, a hedge fund that would have investment from all over. They're just investing on behalf of one individual family. He currently leads an entrepreneurial single family investment office based in Oakville, California. We're going to talk about investing in regenerative agriculture today, what a distributed food system looks like, and how the family office investor can be, in some cases, a great fit for making these ambitions a reality. This is a bit of a different episode from our normal sort of ag techie talk, but it's one that I think you're really going to enjoy. I'll drop you into the conversation here where Stephen tells the story of how he got into all of this.
1: sure. So, I initially joined the investment committee of a family office based in Marin, California, whose foundation was doing a study of the food system. And I took a couple of years to figure out how I wanted to participate. And in 2008 and 9, there wasn't a lot going on in the areas that I was interested in. But I saw an opportunity to blend my production-oriented background in education and agriculture with aspiration. And so my goal was to find a balance. And so I initially did a series of acquisitions with other people to explore vertically integrated diversified agriculture in Hawaii, the place that imports 85% of the food that's consumed and 90% of the energy. And I was interested in looking at ways to vertically integrate the output of these operations or add value in ways that would allow us to decouple that output from the commodity markets maybe through branding or through some other value add and capture more retail margin at a food level or at a farm level. So initially focused on diversified ag and building a model for that and something that I was involved with called on ranch, and then moved on to proteins and wanted to understand the beef supply chain, then moved on to diversified fruits and veggies, and then spent about a year and a half consolidating a number of nut orchards with a great group based out of California. For the last three years, I've been more focused on the demand end of the supply chain, looking at opportunities to start with food products or similar companies that either have or want to have super transparent, high-integrity supply chains where I could help them vertically integrate back up and connect with that output. So the goal was to develop a perspective on each of these different areas of food. And then use my background in investing to deploy capital in ways that would support a regenerative food system that I hope to be a part of.
0: Is that entity in Hawaii is it still going today? It is. It and is. what type you said diversified farming system? what ty- what types of crops are they are growing and marketing there?
1: So Hana was the first investment and it was really intended to be a model for some of the other things that we've done. It's a 3,700 acre ranch on the Southeast side of Maui. It's a very different climate than even on the other side of Maui. It's very wet and lush. Our goal was to take this place-based approach to building out a cattle operation. They graze several thousand head of cattle, Finish many of them on the ranch, but Almost all cattle in Hawaii are shipped to the mainland to finish. And then cut and wrapped meat is sent back to Hawaii, which is <laughs> what people eat. And so our goal was to look at ways to finish cattle in Hawaii and keep them there. Ironically, they finished them there for a long time on pineapple and sugar cane. But given the evolution of farming practices in Hawaii over time, the pineapple and sugarcane became too toxic for the cows. and So they, they stopped doing that. We launched a veggie program where we were growing more biointensive vegetables, an orchard program that now grows fruits and nuts. And then we began exploring opportunities to produce domestic supplies of herbal ingredients for some of the supplement companies that were sourcing those ingredients from outside of the United States. And they were very interested in in testing what we could produce in an agroforestry program higher up on the volcano in Hawaii.
0: And has that thought process of figuring out how you can capture more margin from a production standpoint, you know, has that been kind of the central theme to other investments you've made as well?
1: Yes, in every case. And as I explored this thesis for how I believe our food system is evolving and really increasingly being redefined by fragmentation after a period of consolidation and centralization, I have focused on four pillars that are really authenticity connection, traceability, and transparency. And I've found that if you can achieve these four things, you can solve for a lot of the goals that we try to achieve through third party certification. And so every one of the investments that I've been involved with has had a element of this.
0: Uh, tell me about kind of your investment vehicle. So you you invest on behalf of a family office, is that right?
1: So I have invested on behalf of a number of family offices. You know, I as I embarked on this journey Uh, didn't believe that a traditional fund structure worked well for it. And so my goal was to spend as long as it took to understand how we can best deploy different profiles of capital and use capital to collaborate, so possibly de-risk something through philanthropy or make it investable to align a profile of capital that wants exposure to land but may not have a risk appetite or want to have exposure to operations. And so in most things that I've been involved with, the goal has been to align the profile of the capital with the profile of the asset. And that has resulted in bringing together different groups. I currently serve as the CEO of a family office who was one of our investors in prior projects. And I actually met the principal of the family office in Hana when we were first launching. And she spent three days with us to understand how we were thinking about this. I also, outside of the family office, have done projects with other families over the last couple of years as well. And I'm in the process of creating a new permanent vehicle, which I'll use going forward for some of these investments. Oh,
0: that's very interesting. Before we go down that road, can you just explain for anybody in the audience who may not know what a family office is, what, what we refer to when we call something a family office?
1: Sure. Many of us think of a family office as an organization organization that's set up to invest and oversee the assets of one family. So in many ways, it looks like an investment firm, maybe a small investment firm. But all of the capital being deployed is of that one family.
0: And does the investment profile of a family office vary pretty wildly from one family to another, I would imagine?
1: It does in so many different ways. The types of things they are invested in, the amount of risk they're interested in taking, I've tended to work with families that are fairly aspirational and have a desire to align their assets with their values. And in the case of Meyer Family Enterprises, whom I'm a part of, the principal is very aspirational and has spent the last 15 years doing so.
0: And where are you looking for and or or finding opportunities in agriculture today in 2020?
1: So part of the reason that I've spent the last three years really focused on the demand end of the supply chain on retail and products is because I felt like asset values were were higher than I could justify or or find opportunities that made sense. So I, for the last three years, have supported other people in work that they're doing, especially on land that they already own. But I found it very difficult to find anything that, that made sense from an investment perspective on a production basis. Unfortunately or unfortunately, given what we're seeing in the economy right now, I believe that we'll start to see opportunities develop again. And there's been an interesting dynamic over the last really seven years where you have a lot of institutional capital and maybe family office capital that is liquid and looking for opportunities for investment. And that's created a lot of demand for these assets. And in some cases, we see these asset purchases being, these agricultural purchases being underwritten based on record assumptions, you know, record high commodity prices, record high levels of appreciation, record low interest rates. And there isn't a lot of opportunity for error or a lot of margin for error when that's the case. So you end up seeing asset values driven up. On the other side, I've talked to a lot of families who are facing a generational transition or need to sell in the next few years for one reason or another. But they see what's going on in the market and they keep wait- waiting for that next higher dollar for that. They keep trying to top the market, if you will. And at some point, and I think we're nearing it, we will begin to see as- uh, institutional capital pullback and have opportunities to be deployed other places. And you'll see these families realize that they may have missed the top in the market. And so I expect that you might see a dynamic where there is less demand and more supply and that might bring valuations back in line with where i think you see fair value.
0: And for your investment thesis here, why is it important to own the farms itself? It sounds like your your plan would be to add value by kind of building out the rest of the value chain and getting them closer to the consumer. You know, if if the assets themselves, meaning the farms are overvalued, why not just build the rest of the chain and sort of work backwards?
1: Well, that's actually what i've been doing. So, i have been involved with food companies. One of them last year was a company called Gaia Herbs that farms about 475 acres in North Carolina, has an incredibly high quality product, a transparency program called Know Your Herbs, and has deep integrity. They also have manufacturing, but despite that, they procure about 75% of their ingredients from others. And so I've spent time with companies like that as they face generational transitions. And that's probably a kind of an underlying theme of the work that I've been doing is, you know, we have a lot of really great farmers, farmland, food companies and and related businesses that are facing a generational transition. And so almost everything that I've been involved with has had an element of either generational transition and leadership or ownership where I was willing to go in and navigate diverse stakeholders and figure out how we could steward the vision of that operation into the future and bring in aligned capital that had a very long-term perspective. When you ask about owning uh, land, you know I don't feel that it's necessary to, ne- to own all of the land but I take a very long view on these things. And by owning the asset, it gives you flexibility to make very long-term decisions that might not pay out in the next year, uh, despite the fact that we're very financially focused.
0: Could you give us an example of, of maybe an investment in what kind of was changed about that asset to to add value or you know, to kind of get it to where you wanted
1: it? Sure. Well, I think that the opportunity to change an asset is really dependent on place. So somewhere like Hana, which is very wet and very lush, the landscape grows so quickly that nutrient density is actually a problem in the grasses for finishing the cattle. It's what we call washy. And so we had to think about the opportunity to, to graze those cattle and finish them in a way where we could get that nutrient density and the, the calories into the into the cow to finish them in an environment where they, you know, just on, a, on grass couldn't eat enough to get to full weight. And so we had to think about other crops that we could grow or pasture mixes that we could plant to get the nutrient density there. On the other hand, in a drier environment, it might be, well, actually, let me use a different example in an environment that was come that was was very degraded. You know, it might take us 3 years to remediate the soils in order to actually get the get the land to a place where we can produce food. So, in farms that we had out in the Sacramento Delta of California, we spent 3 years grazing it and growing different mixes that we would graze to allow some of the herbicide and pesticide residue to dissipate. And oftentimes you'll hear people talk about a 3-year transition period to organic, but in many ways that 3-year transition period is necessary for the land as well. And there's there's some lie, you know, there there's a deeper reason behind that 3-year period than just the certification. And so we look to different ways that we can plant crops and in some case add amendments if we can afford to do so in that location in order to Prepare that land to grow a crop that we might not have been willing to grow, or it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have had the fertility to grow uh, when we first took over the landscape.
0: And generally speaking, are you are you wanting to certify these properties as organic?
1: You know, it's interesting. I think that organic certification is important, but everything that we're doing is so far beyond the organic certification that our customers don't really care, and so it's a longer discussion, but we have certified some of our fields, but it's not a top priority for us.
0: And what about those who would say, you know, that sounds great when you've got a good customer base that is willing to pay a premium to be connected to, you know, knowing where their food comes from, but you can't feed the world that way. You know, that's the the common argument that comes up. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I disagree from the research that I've read and from what I've observed we have plenty of land to feed the world, but we can't do it in the same way that we are trying to do it today. You know, we have over 100 million acres of corn and soy and other industrial crops that could be, which is land that could be used to grow food, what we think of as food. And if you look at the percentage of corn and soy that are going into things that aren't food, it really exaggerates the opportunity. We have shifted to this, you know, we went from a model of producing our food and consuming, consuming our food hyper-regionally to really a centralized kind of manufacturing model that plugs into a global distribution system. I believe in, in this broader thesis that we are moving back to more regional food production. and. The problem is our existing food system isn't ready to aggregate the output of these regional systems of smaller production. And so there's a disconnect right now between land being, food being produced on the ground and it being connected to the global distribution system. But we're seeing an interesting dynamic evolve of aggregation develop and companies aggregating, and they will be better positioned to plug into that global distribution system. And I wondered if this was actually playing out. And in October of 2015, spent a lot of time traveling around the country to validate whether I was kidding myself. And I came back at the end of that month more convinced than ever that this was playing out, and it's only picked up steam. And one of the most wonderful dynamics about all of this is the consumer is driving it now. And I believe the consumer is going through a very structural shift in their relationship with food that values attributes in their food that look more like those attributes they valued before the industrialization of our food system than after. So it's not about local or organic, in my opinion, but it's these other attributes that I mentioned earlier on, authenticity, connection, traceability, and transparency. And if you think about it, you know, the generation, the baby boomers and even generation X who were so enamored with price and packaging and convenience of industrialized food, that they were willing to hand over this deep relationship and ownership of their food that they had previously. But today, our food system is really being defined by a generation of people who can't figure out why we thought TV dinners were so fantastic in a society that takes the positive attributes of industrialized food for granted, like price and packaging. And so I believe people are reconnecting with the source of their food and they're realizing the experiential social value of exploring and introducing friends and connecting with their food again and I believe there's a great proxy for how our food system's evolving and looking at the wine industry and what it took to go from 300 to 10,000 brands and along the way we crossed a tipping point where you went from the small guys trying to look like the big guys to the big guys trying to look like the small guys and we never looked back and it creates a cycle of acquisition where the big guys have to start buying the small guys to stay relevant with an evolving consumer. And that's the case because it's very hard to develop the authentic core brands that the consumer now wants inside of a large organization. And the big companies that get it realize that they're not buying a product extension in and of itself, but rather they're buying a core set of values that the consumer relates to. And there's a lot more to this dynamic But it was easier for it to play out in higher margin categories first, if you think about wine, craft spirits, chocolate, coffee, and so on. But today, we're seeing this play out all the way down to fresh produce and proteins. And I believe that the consumer is shifting away from third-party certification as their good housekeeping seal of approval and reconnecting with brands to play that role.
0: Certainly a lot of the headlines uh, you referenced to kind of seeing the cracks in the food system and, and a lot of the headlines have been related to the concentration or consolidation of meat processing. And as I think about this concept you're talking about, which is kind of refragmentation, one glaring gap in that to me is that processing capability on a, on a kind of a regional basis. It seems very, very difficult to compete Price wise, with with some of those big centralized processors, you know, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So I have a couple of thoughts. First off, it's not just meat. If you look at what's happening in dairy right now, if you look at the number of fields that are being tilled in that we're producing vegetables that can't get to market, and same thing if you look at companies producing berries, you know, there's a, just an incredible amount of food that is stuck in the system right now. I agree with you that investment in the supply chain. Is one of the gating factors to our food system evolving in a direction that I hope it will and, and believe it is. It's not sexy, but it requires a different mindset. There's such a tendency in our society to reward invention, and so we see disproportionate amounts of capital making huge bets on single kind of single point silver bullet solutions to these systems based problems and. I agree with you that we have to be willing to invest in processing infrastructure and and packing and co-manufacturing in, a, in order to connect this regional food production at a farm level to manufacturing and to distribution. It doesn't exist today. It's going to require a different mindset for how we invest capital and how we think our food system is working. But encouragingly, it's it's happening and we're seeing people do it very profitably.
0: If somebody's listening and, and they're a producer and, and they're I guess I'll use the word commodity. so they're a commodity producer and they're intrigued by you know your thoughts of kind of the refragmentation and wondering how can I add value and maybe move myself closer to the consumer and become one of those brands that that a customer is going to trust, is that I guess maybe feasible because for lack of a better term, is that feasible for an average producer to take the first steps to that end?
1: Yes and no. I believe that most farmers and ranchers want to farm and ranch, but they want to connect with their consumer. So if we go back to the wine industry example, there was a time when people were producing grapes for better flavor profiles, for lower yields in ways that were better for the land, but they were still having to sell into a commodity market to the big wineries because that's, that was the market at the time, and they were getting paid a small premium over the commodity reference price for their output. But like we're seeing in other industries, and for many different reasons, whether they were facing financial stress or a generational transition or something else, they were just entrepreneurial, we saw people start making wine out of their garage. But they didn't have access to capital equipment, and so they could only make a certain amount and only had a market to distribute a certain amount of their of their output. But By taking the risk to invest incremental dollars into their ag output, they were able to capture more retail margin at a farm level. At the same time, you started to have people who didn't grow grapes who created more demand for that better produced fruit. And as this occurred, you started to have what we call the custom crush ecosystem develop in wine, where a grower or a a wine label didn't need to invest the millions of dollars that may be necessary to produce their own winery and vertically integrate on their own but people started to invest in capital equipment and provide access to it and services to those growers you also had an ecosystem develop around other services such as winemaking expertise and branding and marketing and cold storage and regional distribution so all of a sudden that grower had a turnkey solution to vertically integrate and connect with her his or her consumer it was good for the consumer from an experiential and from a product perspective it was good for the farmer because he or she was able to capture more retail margin if they chose to do this and of course you have a lot of successes and a lot of failures along the way but on balance it was it was very good for everybody it ended up improving the quality of grapes that have been grown because that those growers ended up defining the market for what the consumer expected, and so a lot of the big, bigger producers adopted the practices of the smaller growers, and it was good for the land because if you look at how the land is managed today, a lot has changed and, and I would argue, improved on a, on a broad scale. We're going to have to see the same thing happen in in other areas, and we we have seen it happen across the board. If you look at some of the other categories I mentioned, but Grow farmers and ranchers are going to have to have access to processing, to manufacturing, to distribution, and to the expertise that I mentioned in the Custom Crush ecosystem for for wine grapes.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that is a fascinating idea, and I, I hope it happens where where a farmer could, let's say they grow, I, I mean, you name it, let's say they grow corn and they want to have their own whiskey label and they could, you know, basically outsource the process after it leaves their farm, but still market their own whiskey themselves, right? Would that be kind of a, a parallel?
1: Yes, but I think that different growers will want to vertically integrate to different degrees. Mm. So there, you can brand all the way to the end product, but I also believe you can brand to you know, your operation to another buyer. So when I was part of creating something called Greenspring Farms that uses rotational methods to farm about 14,000 acres in California and Oregon. And my interest there was to see whether or not we could employ almost an Intel inside model to approach larger buyers, uh, larger food companies, with a mindset that anything that came off of our land would represent them well, would have been produced in ways that were aligned with their values, and were of high quality. So while we had some branded products in that operation, The goal wasn't necessarily to use the output to produce a finished product, but to create a brand for those farms that represented a certain certain set of values and quality. And so I think that each producer will have to figure out what's right for them. And what I've learned over time is we can do certain things in certain landscapes and operations, and we can't in others. And if we go back to that spectrum I mentioned earlier and apply it to a farmer, if you think about getting from convention to aspiration... There are dozens and dozens of factors that dictate any enterprise's ability to move from one end of the spectrum to the other. If you think about it, it's the skills of your team on a given day. It's weather. It's access to capital. It's the markets for that product. It's public policy. And so what I've found is that we have to figure out what's possible in an enterprise. And my goal is never to hit a certain goal, but to define the goal based on the landscape and the operation and then take the time to migrate it to whatever we're trying to achieve.
0: Very interesting. Last question here, new segment we're closing out with called Overrated, Underrated. And I'm curious to get your take on plant-based foods. Think we're,
1: we're underrated or are we overrated and why? So I think that innovation is great. And I really applaud everybody who is looking for solutions. I happen to believe that consumers should shift to more of a plant-based diet but i don't think that the next spam or tang equivalent is necessarily the answer i think it's easy for us all to be distracted by the technological accomplishments of some of these products but when you look at the hundreds of millions of dollars being invested in them i find it some i think there's an opportunity cost because if you look at the capital invested in just a handful of these companies, if we were actually to deploy that capital into more regenerative agriculture practices and infrastructure, it would have a seismic shift on our entire food system. And so I think the opportunity to truly invest in our food system is underrated and the opportunity to take a systems perspective and be a part of something is underrated. And the desire to be a unicorn and stand out and present the next technological invention is overrated.
0: Well put. Stephen. thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I'm excited to hear more about this permanent investment vehicle that you're working on. And when you roll that out, maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk about it because I think that's, that's intriguing. Anything else or, or maybe you know, if anyone's listening wants to follow up on any of these concepts, is there a good place we could tell them to connect with you or reach out to you?
1: Sure. I would suggest using email, which is s-h-o-h-e-n-r-i-e-d-e-r at gmail.com. And I welcome the dialogue. I've put a couple articles out on Medium just to, to spawn discussion. And I think the more that we can engage a broad group of people in these discussions, the better. Thanks so much again to
0: Stephen Reader for sharing his perspective on the show. I thought that was really fascinating. For you listening, what are your thoughts on this idea of a more distributed food system at scale? Is this possible? What do you think? Let me know. I'm on Twitter at Tim Hamrich. Also would encourage you to go find Stephen on Medium. He has a couple really detailed Medium articles, which are really what got me excited about some of these topics we discussed on the show. So if you want to go deeper, find him there on Medium.com. Hey, I want to give a quick plug. I haven't done this in a while. If you haven't rated and reviewed the show on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use, iTunes tends to be the big ones for reviews for whatever reason, please do so. It takes maybe 30 seconds. It really helps us get the word out that this show is worth listening to for others, kind of that social proof we need to get others listening as well. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.